Hello, and welcome to the Brighton Parkcast. I'm your host, James LaPlane. I'm so excited to bring you today's conversation, which is part one of a two-part discussion about strategic planning. My guests today are two dear friends, Sarah Greer and Adrian Purrier. Sarah and Adrian have spent more than a decade leading co-creation and strategic planning sessions, initially at Hewlett Packard and then independently. They created a visual framework that begins with identifying a critical focus question and then depicts key elements from conversations held throughout the session. For all of us that have experienced the often haphazard approach that many companies take to strategic planning, this conversation might surprise you. Adrian and Sarah are part storytellers, part historians, and part therapists. We discuss time travel, t-shirt moments, the messy parts of creativity, and how vulnerability is the key to a successful session. Let's meet Sarah and Adrian and hear about their work. Good morning, Adrian and Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode. Lovely to see you, James. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you. I thought maybe we'd start with a little bit of introduction about who the two of you are. So maybe, Sarah, you could start off. My designation, right? Identity is so interesting. An artist, for sure, a designer, and you've got a significant passion for horses. You want to give us a little bit of your background? I do. So first of all, thanks very much for having us. This is really exciting. So I had a, early on a really strong passion for painting, for art, for lettering, for fonts. In fact, I have in my house like funny little painted boards that I did fonts and things on. I was like really geeky about it <laughs> at a pretty early age. Went off to school, got a BFA, and then worked in a few art galleries. And then I ended up on our family farm, which was just kind of a strange turn of events. But I found myself thinking, well, here I am and I'm running this facility. It's not just enough just to run the boarding facility. That's kind of nice, but we've got all this land. And what if I set up some horse shows? And so basically I started a series of nationally run events that are basically like the triathlon of riding for horses and riders. So they do three sports. So over like a hundred acres. So then because I did all of that for so long, I mean, at 25 years, I did that James, which is like crazy (laughs) that I think that I did that for that long, but probably never your intention, right? For that amount of time. hundred percent. But when I came to work on Adrian's team, back in like 2012, I'm faced with, well, we do this kind of cool thing and the scale is really off the charts and da, da, da. well, that didn't bother me at all. I was like, <laughs> let me add it a hundred feet of white wall. I have no problem with that. So that's yeah, so that's pretty much my background. And so again, you know, now we'll, we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, but it's like yeah. the marrying of like running things, putting on events, hosting things and the art. So that's me. I love when people bring their passion into their work, which you clearly do. We see it visually, right? We'll get to talk more about that. And the same's true for you, Adrian. So maybe you could give us a bit of your background. You've got some training as a therapist, which I think is fascinating. You play the role of facilitator and a strategy leader. I would say you are also an executive whisperer, right? It's kind of a, an interesting combination of things. So, oh, and I should mention a supporter of the Leicester City Football Club. Definitely the latter. <laughs> now, sadly, in the championships, although I saw them winning the other day, nice to be winning again. Yes, for sure. Yeah, four decades working with groups. And I started in counseling. I was going to become a family therapist, trained in social work, but found myself working helping organizations who were stuck, helping people with inertia. And over time, the last two and a half decades, with technology companies, with companies who are struggling with technology, the business technology alignment, and the last 12 years or so with Sarah, really focusing on how you can create moments that matter for people who want to get unstuck, who want to attack or address inertia, which we see as the big enemy. For sure. Yeah. It's interesting. I love that word unstuck because I think that's kind of the struggle that we have, right? Whether it's a work environment or personal, you just want to feel like you've got the right direction, you're pointing the right way and that you're making some incremental improvement. And I I think so much of your work is aligning people correctly with that goal. 
you hit the right word, aligning. We spend most time not bringing to people anything that we bring. We spend most time helping people find each other, figure out what they want to become, where they want to go. Right. Yeah, I think we spend most of our time looking at organizations, talking to them, interviewing them, researching, trying to really just get a look under the covers so that we can help to set the stage, you know, set the table so that we can bring them together to have those really rich, collaborative, co-designed sessions where they can get the most out of it. And I think we often, like clients will often say to us, we can't believe we got that much done in a day. Yeah, I've seen that happen myself, actually. And I totally agree with that sentiment. So is it fair to say that you do strategic planning? That that feels to me like it doesn't cover the gamut of what you provide. How, how do you describe it? We don't do analysis. We don't do long consulting assignments. Right. What we do do is join people if they're doing strategic planning and help them figure out how a critical event could work, how yep. they can make decisions that are thoughtful, wiser. And I think Sarah mentioned some of what we do. We also do history. You've built history panels. You invented history panels. So Mm. we help people take stock of where they've been, where they are now, the current reality, and what they really want, where they're going. What's their North Star? What's their shared vision? What does the world want from them three years, five years, 10 years from now? Right. And what, what do they need to become? If that's strategic planning, then yes, we do that. (laughs) (laughs) I I was thinking there's a punchline waiting to be written here, which I I don't know what it is, but I'll give you the setup. You guys can think about it. So a trained therapist and an artist walk into a bar. (laughs) What happens next? We got to work on this. I don't know what the the punchline is. (laughs) Everybody starts disclosing stuff. (laughs) And they're doing it it all over the walls, right? (laughs) It's so interesting. So you've got this practice that you call shared vision, Mm -hmm. right? And I I love those two words. We'll certainly talk more about that. How is this similar to a traditional program management? It's the antidote to traditional (laughs) program management. I believe it. We often say, if you're going to do a big program, bring us in in the first week. And what we'll do is we'll help you really think about the hard decisions. What are the outcomes you want? What are the critical success factors? What must be true for this to work? And we'll often do that with the stakeholders for the program coming in and endorsing the vision, the direction, the outcomes. And that probably sets the program up for success. But how they execute. Yeah, that's definitely not our sweet spot. (laughs) And I think one of the things that we found as well is that And we find this like through the interview process because we'll interview folks just sort of one-on-one. We don't attribute anything anybody's saying to the group because we really want them to feel like, you know, again, we're looking under the covers. We want to have a good sense of that organization and tell us your challenges. When we bring them together, we help them to align around not just a shared vision, but things like a common language. Mm -hmm. We find sometimes people are just talking past each other. And, you know, they'll say one thing and they mean something else. And, you know, we've all been on the receiving end of that. And it's frustrating. It sucks time. And people never really feel like they're a part of something. So you're exactly right, Adrian. Bring us in like in the first week. And goodness will follow. You'll get, it's an accelerator. The fuzzy front end, that's where we... are really good. Where we sit. Yeah. But James, you've brought us in. We've worked with your team. Yes. What would you have called that session looking back? You know, the word that comes to my mind most often is you helped us build a narrative about the vision that we wanted to execute. And as you were talking, I was even thinking about this. So often strategic planning focuses on the execution. And they skip past the hard work, the deep work, the upfront work that you're alluding to about what it is you're actually trying to accomplish. And Sarah, I think you said, sometimes you'll find people talk past each other. I think you could replace sometimes with most times, right? Right. I'm sure I was being kind. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a real problem, I think, in this space because you can 
you know, whether people do it in-house, which I think is a real struggle because then you live in the culture and you're of the culture trying to assess yourself or you bring a third party in, which can be much more neutral, which is the role that you play. It's hard work to make people vulnerable, to build a trust that you can have an honest conversation. And so my guess is that's the upfront work. That's the interview session, I think, Sarah, that you alluded to, right? Yeah, that's a huge part of it. And you hit the nail on the head. It's about the upfront work. It's about being vulnerable. It takes a lot of courage to be mm-hmm. vulnerable and take those risks to sort of reveal the elephants in the room. And <laughs> I've gotten very good at drawing elephants <laughs> over I the bet. years. <laughs> you also said neutral. And yeah. We talk about yeah. neutrality a lot. And we think it's a stance people can adopt even if they're in the same organization and they're doing what we do. Interesting. You did it. Yeah. Yeah. In HP, we were neutral. People could bring us in. We didn't have an ax to grind. Right. Which wasn't to say we weren't tough or opinionated, but we were there to help them make the decisions. We weren't trying to second guess their decisions. And I think that's the essence of neutrality. We describe our meetings as summits. Yeah. And summits need preparation. They need Sherpas. They need thought, design. But ultimately, it's up to the participants to agree something. It's not our role to second guess that agreement. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I want to talk about the work that you did at HP. This is the Envision team, as you branded it. What was the original purpose? How did the team come together to solve this problem for HP? I think the original ask was a customer ask. How do you meet customers and work with them differently? Meg Whitman said it really well as CEO. She said to about 100 CIOs at a meeting, bring your team, spend a day with us, and let us work backwards from your outcomes, from your strategy, and figure out what the best value exchange is, and we'll stop passing each other like ships in the night, will understand what you want and what we might be able to help you with. And that was our pattern. That's right. That question came from an audience member from a CIO summit. How do you do innovation? Mm. Yeah. And it was, she was like, envision. <laughs> no, pressure. no pressure. No yeah, pressure. <laughs> why she liked it was it didn't matter to us whether it was the CEO to CEO, the board to board, the CIO, we didn't mind what the level was because we weren't trying to position or sell anything to that level. We were simply the facilitators of that dialogue. So it worked worked really well. And therefore, growth is the first answer. Envision for growth. Then envision for product management, portfolio management. We ended up running the customer advisory boards. We met you. You were a member of that. So you must have a point of view about that different customer advisory board experience where we're not killing you with PowerPoint, but you're actually having a conversation and Sarah's capturing the results live over more than a day. And everyone can see everything that's built as we go. Yeah. Well, I want to get into some of those details, but before we do, I, I will tell you this. The first time I walked into that room, we'll talk about the environment because I think it's such an interesting element of the practice that you do. It was so unlike any other setting I had been in around advisory boards or any board really structure. And I remember leaving thinking, this changed everything because now I'm going to evaluate every other you know, session that I attend that's like this against this metric. And honestly, I'll tell you, nothing compares still, frankly. So <laughs> it's a really, and that's cool. been, I mean, it's been many, many years now, right? It's like, it's, I still think about it. It's an amazing thing. But before we get to that, so you're saying Envision really became from a request from an outside CEO during an HP conversation. Was it then also positioned internally? So you were helping solve, you know, HP strategy as well as uh, customers? Some of it, sometimes. I mean, we served at the pleasure of the CEO. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, as we all do, yeah. We did some interesting internal strategy stuff and also Mm -hmm. some things with product people. We love working with the labs. Occasionally, there's a need for people to come together and create that alignment we talked about. And sometimes it just helps to have people designing and facilitating those sessions. So. If there was a need, we would would help. 100%. And as the practice grew, and it did, it grew and it scaled rapidly. 
we found that the internal sessions were great to bring some of the new resources in and give them a chance to shadow, give them a chance to actually engage and start to practice a little bit, right? That was always my excuse. Why are you doing that? I'd say training. And they say, oh, okay. And it worked. It worked. Yeah. It's quite a commitment, though, for a company to make a priority to set up a practice like this, right? Dedicated resources and energy and time. And so you had some angle, maybe it was a positive here with HP, which was well, we're doing it with our customer base and for and on behalf of our customer base. And that helps. But it was bigger than that because it wasn't just for the customers that you were ultimately doing this. You really created, in many ways, a category, right? A space, a place that didn't exist before and a practice that didn't exist before. Do you think other companies will have that same ability to create that within their own walls? We think so. I mean, HP became many companies. It's split itself a lot smaller. And we still work with Huda Packard Enterprise, HPE, great organization. Some of our practice when HP split went out external, became independent like Mm -hmm. Sarah and I. Mm -hmm. There's a chunk of them in Amazon. So there's the AWS envisioning and people who run all the EBCs. That's at the core. That's the part of the envision practice. So I think it does transfer. I think it's a will. If other companies want it, they could build this. I think what's hard, James, is to describe what you experience. So the trap we find is everything we do usually comes from somebody who's sponsoring it, who's experienced it. Right. And if they explain it to someone else, you can see confusion. Or people say, well, we do this already. We did this. (laughs) We did a session in Christmas, December. A global tech company. We were the neutrals. Both of the others said, well, we've got teams to do this. And afterwards, both said, no, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think you're hitting on something that's really important. Established teams will almost always default to that answer, right? They believe that they've got the capability, that they have been probably through sessions of strategy, whatever that may have been themselves, and they'll just rinse and repeat that. There's an inertia. You mentioned this word already. There's an inertia here that you have to overcome to convince someone to try a different approach. There is. An absence of a book. Well, people are writing books, but (laughs) there isn't a manual on how do I do a co-creation session. Yeah. Because it would be a very big manual. You'd have to cover so many scenarios. You know, what I've been thinking lately, and we're going to do this, right, Adrian? We're going to do this. (laughs) I think the thing that would describe it next to us actually trying to describe it over a phone call, the thing that would actually do better than even a book is a documentary. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you want to make a... I want to make a a short film of of us just working. Because I think that if you're going to get close enough to it, that's, you know, without actually being there, that would be the next best best thing. We need a customer to agree to. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we we do a number of pro bono Mm -hmm. sessions, but even they, they're not-for-profits. We don't charge them. But right. you imagine saying to them, we'd like to turn up with a camera crew. And they'll go, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think it could work. I think it could work. It's, I think it's, we should it's do like, it. It's like sausage making. You don't want to see strategy <laughs> making in public. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe, maybe what you have to target is a media company that's already does video production and do it for them while they're also recording, right? Maybe they'd be more re- you know, open to it. There you go. There yeah. That's it. That's the yeah. sweet spot. We'll figure out a solution here. Well, let's get into the details. I'd love to talk about the approach that you follow, right? So let's start at a high level. We can kind of drill in. There are four critical elements to the work that you do, and maybe we could walk through these. The first part of this, every session is centered around a focus question. What's an example of a focus question? Great question. (laughs) It depends. (laughs) (laughs) What is our dot, 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 shared vision and how do we position ourselves for success in, let's say, 2033? Right, so it's now. Yeah, yeah. Do clients come to you with a focus question already created often, or is that something you have to literally begin with, well, let's let's work through the clutter here and figure out what that is? We work through the clutter. 100%. Yeah. There'll be after, you can usually spot one you see the, the well fairly quickly <laughs> we, we have a theory there are always five or six 
questions they could and should be answering. And the challenge is to pick the right one. Sometimes yeah. people say, we want to answer this question. And we look at it and go, that's the board. You're not the board. Uh, yeah. Come down a level. Right. Or they answer, they say, here's the question. And we say, really? Is that <laughs> not, not the limit enough. of your ambition? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. yeah, good points. You have to push them. Yeah. But that will like serve then, you know, through the interviews, it's kind of a North Star right? Yeah. Because it sets the context for how big will this meeting be? What What is the scope of this summit? And it serves as guardrails. You know, if things start, if they start to, and it's been a long time since I've been in a summit that went a little bit off track, but we can revisit that focus question halfway through. Are we solving, yeah. you know, are we, and I'm pointing to like where it is in the room and we'll get to that, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So it's the guardrails. I think. Yeah. And it keeps you grounded then. So all those conversations you have following need to somehow relate back to that focus question, or that's an indicator that, that something's gone a little bit sideways. Right. Yeah. And then the focus question itself sometimes has, we have to poke at it quite hard and unpack what a word means and define it richly. And that yeah. helps people as well. Well, yeah. and it's like we said at the beginning, it's how can we find that common language? So if it says customer in it, we might have to spend five minutes. Well, what are we talking about when we say or, customer? Or you mean one, case, one thing? I in mean, one case, an hour. <laughs> or an hour, yeah. yeah. And then, and again, you know, we're writing all over it and augmenting it and capturing what what it is they're saying about that focus question. Yeah, it makes sense. And Sarah, you you alluded to the next you know critical element here, which are the interviews which you conduct ahead of in person session or or video session. Tell me a little bit about what do you establish by doing those interviews? They're, in, they're individual, right? With each participant? Individual and non-attributable. You're right. So right. We Important ask point. people to be candid and trust us. And if you didn't do those interviews, I assume you glean a lot of contextual information you can then apply to the session, but also you allow the participant that bit of time they have to allow their barriers to come down, right? If you didn't do that and you met them first in the room, well, now half the day is going to be taken up of kind of like making them relaxed and comfortable, I would imagine. Yes. And it depends. We don't always do them. We did a session this week with 40 engineers in Silicon Valley. Okay. We knew the leader. We knew the brief. We prepped for it really hard. But it was a coming together of more than one team. It wasn't appropriate to interview them all because it would have yeah. created a whole load of concern Fear, and dread. Oh, that's right. interesting too. Yeah. So this was a bringing together people. But you're absolutely right. The first hour, hour and a half, they were quiet. It was a little tentative. Yeah. Group dynamics kick in here, I'm sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If it's a team, absolutely. We want to interview everyone. Right. Yeah. And, and I would say if I had to sum the interviews up in one word, intimacy. Yeah. They create intimacy and... That it's like, again, we're starting, you know, light years ahead down the path of getting up that summit by having those conversations. That makes a lot of sense. Well, then you move into this third element, which you've also kind of briefly touched on here, which is the prep time, right? The work you have to do kind of off camera to be prepared for the session. And that, that's measured in number of days, number of weeks. Is there a typical time frame for that? It's a number of days, sometimes okay. many days. Weeks is wonderful and a luxury, <laughs> a luxury, <laughs> but these sure. days we're moving pretty fast. Yeah. yeah. I think it's yeah. the bit where if people watch the documentary when we <laughs> make it, they'll see a lot of scribbling, false starts. Yeah. We fill walls with ideas. Yeah. Where we're ending is Sarah calls it the armature, which is the, you explain armature. Yeah, the armature. So the armature is for me, I mean, having done a lot of sculpting, it is that aluminum wire that is mm. underneath what you then put the clay over. Yeah, and this is the support structure. It, yeah, it's the support and it, it's very, but it's very moldable. So yeah. there's a lot of, we resist the, well, let's build this. So we'll actually... I mean, build it for the final time. It's like, we'll build yeah. it and then we'll change it. We'll build it, we'll change it. We'll build it, we'll change it. And just constantly remolding until it becomes like fit enough for purpose. 
Right. And still things will change in a session. But here's the thing I'd really love to talk about just for a minute about that this research process that we go into because Adrian will be in his studio in England and I'll be here at Ohio in my studio. And inevitably, as the days lead up to it, we kind of always get to this thing. We just realized what to call it this year. It's the shitties. Yeah. So it's like, we'll kind of be going up our own little mountain and figuring stuff out and I'll find some great resources and send them to Adrian. He'll find great things and send them to me. And it'll all seem like it's going great. And then there's always this point where it feels like this isn't going to work. This is too hard. It's too complex. We can't get our arms around it. And but don't you just, have to go through yeah. that process to get to heck the better result? Yes, heck yeah. yes. And, Every time. And so yeah. I almost like embrace that, the yeah. shitties when we get them now. I'm like, oh boy. That's and and I, I don't know how long it lasts for you, Adrian. Sometimes for me, it's like a whole day. Yeah. It's never like more than that because usually just we could kind of talk our way through it and then, you know, results will come. We got this from listening <laughs> to a Pixar director we mm-hmm. both rate. And when she said it, we went, that's it. That's it. (laughs) We've gone through this so many times (laughs) where if you don't go through it now, you you panic. Exactly. We've not worked hard enough. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I was envisioning as you started to talk about this process, the writer's table, right? At a, let's say a sitcom or something where it's, it's the dirty work. There's scraps of paper. You've written notes. The walls are covered. People are actually having debates about approaches like what you're describing is the creative process in many yeah. ways. It's mm-hmm. messy. It's yeah. messy. It's very it's messy. Pressured. My studio here will look like a bomb went off. In <laughs> it. And, and yeah. it's always like right before I leave to go somewhere, you know, get on an airplane or whatever to go do the actual deliver the summit. I'll always spend just a little while cleaning things up. And I, I love that part of the process too, because it's like just getting ready for the next one before I come back. But we're like that when we get there, we build a room and then we mess it up (laughs) and then we have to clean it up before the event. But just like the shitties, we know that's what we go through. You're right, James. It's a creative process. It's just going to be like it is. Yeah. You know what? It's still like when I go out and paint, I'll still, you know, have that moment too. So I think it's just, it's good and it's real and it it means you're really working on it. The difference is when you're painting, you have a view, something you're trying to do. When we're working together, Sarah's building a framework, an armature, and I'm thinking through tasks that a group can do and the group dynamics you mentioned. And we're combining those into a plan for a session. And we're both pretty tough on how long things take with each other. Mm -hmm. So the end result is a meeting that's going to unfold and I'm changing the metaphor, but you end up with a rich tapestry of everything. And to prepare for that, it just takes time. Well, this is wonderful. So let's move on to the fourth critical element, which I think is one of the most interesting as well, which is the environment. And I kind of alluded to this already in saying how surprised I was when I walked into this room Would you guys describe it for us? Well, Adrian, you should take it away. But I mean, that's exactly what we hope is that feeling that you had when you walk into the environment. We want you to be surprised. We want you to be amazed. We want you to feel actually, even if it's tiny, a sense of awe. Like they did this for us. Mm. And we've stripped the room of normal stuff. So no tables, well, no meeting tables, maybe some coffee, put your cups here tables, rolling chairs, no PowerPoint, no screen, floor to ceiling panels, and we've built them and we've covered them. It's a whiteboard with gridded paper. And Sarah has built an environment that people will come in. They'll often see the history panel that she's built for them their history, their timeline, and they'll start there. They'll see their names, the focus question, the flow for the session, and a series of either headers with blank walls or light frameworks. And the whole thing invites creativity. It invites contributions. It's the 
opposite to a formal <laughs> the U shaped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We've all been in enough conference rooms, right? So we can picture that very easily. You've literally removed all those normal elements we'd expect in a conference room and then covered at least three of the walls with this graph paper you described. And Sarah, you've begun this visual mm-hmm. framework that is so pinnacle, right, to the process mm-hmm. itself. You know, the feeling that I can recall still when you walk in there is my own surprise about like, what did I just agree to do? What are, what's going to happen in this room? But then also recognizing the same look on the other participants face as they enter the room. It's really, it's a powerful thing, right? Right then you have to establish that trust, right? So how do you begin that session once people have had this kind of surprise? Because now they're curious, right? And they're also a little bit like, maybe a little trepidation about <laughs> what is this thing going to be? What's the next step that happens? We've invented some icebreakers mm-hmm. that we always use with teams so that the first thing people do is they actually create something and it goes on the wall. And that seems to break. It breaks a little bit the spell. Yeah. So if I have created, and you alluded to this, James, like you walk in and you'll we'll see some stuff, the beginnings of this frameature, this armature on the wall. But that for me is always a delicate balance. I try not to overfill the walls and I try not to have it under underfilled because a totally blank wall, I remember you saying this once, Adrian, and you were spot on. You've got to get a little something on there or it will really freak people out. Like just, you have to have a little something on the walls. And it's really true. So that's the balance there. And I think, how do we get them comfortable? And so if we can get them up and interacting with the wall as soon as possible, and I think it started early on, we were like, well, there's the participants list. Let's have them like dot their own name. Mm -hmm. That was like the first thing. But now we're like, actually have them do a little exercise. I might make some beautiful little frames, just draw them as templates and have them do something And now they're actually interacting with the wall. Now they're getting their fingerprints all over it, literally. So they're owning it. And they need to understand it's a whiteboard. Yeah. So we show you can wipe stuff out, rub stuff out. It can make mistakes. Yep. I love that. I think it's so interesting. So when COVID hit all of us, obviously your work environment changed drastically, yet your work continued. How did you adapt this environment you just described to video? Holy crow, that was the craziest. <laughs> that was like the craziest couple of weeks of my life because... Yeah, we, we uh, lost six months of bookings yes. in a week. Yeah, I mean, it was like horror and terror. And then it was like, okay, survival totally kicked in. And I mean, of course, it was like, are we actually going to survive this? Because I mean, at the time, I mean, I just remember being... We got a call and somebody said... I have a problem. I've got a new team, got to lead a transformation, 10,000 people. The team have never met each other, physically never met each other, brand new. Can you build us a shared vision? And we figured out how to use Zoom and multiple screens and our studios to live facilitate, capture, run a session. And in doing that, we had to break down everything we'd done and work out how we did it differently, yeah, and then train them, teach them how to do it. So we did that, took a month. Right. Then we did a customer advisory board. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Because wow. by that time, people were isolated, and we had 20 CIOs. It was such an amazing two days. We didn't run full days. Mm-hmm. We ran Shorter five hours, yes. four hours. Right. We, we yeah. figured out right away, like there was some sort of, good practices that we could instantiate things like let's just do a three hours let's have them join with two devices so that they could see what was going on in the studio Mm. and see everyone in the room and so we got like really explicit like this is a good practice and maybe we didn't have the awe or the whatever walking into the room (laughs) that we get face to face but yet when they joined on their device and two devices and could see that here in the studio, I had created, again, some frameworks, a little bit of artwork, was ready to go, ready to capture those conversations. And the clever bit, one of my friends ordered me a 20 by 12 foot green screen with a 
uh, roller blind. Yeah. That appeared. And then Sarah took pictures of her studio. I could project them behind me. It looked like we were side by side. And so we could neat. update them during the session. Yeah. So yeah. people thought, oh, they're together. Um, no? <laughs> right. And as a, like a side, I probably a lot of other folks can relate to this, but even though I work for a lot of, do a lot of things with a lot of tech companies, I sort of think of myself as kind of old school. And a lot of, you know, the face-to-face stuff has always been on paper with pens. And I didn't even have an iPad when COVID hit. And so there were just so many things that we immediately, I think of that whole period of time as just jumping into the deep end of the pool and just saying, come on, let's do this. Let's make the most out of it. And we learned that if you did a good session, you could then take a recording of it and do some interviews and turn that into a film that people could use on a global town hall, which is what happened. We ended up... Sarah, you even started animating some of the vision on, elements. On my iPad that I had <laughs> just gotten. I mean, I, I loved it. All of a sudden, just, again, so much of the software got so good so yeah. fast. And yeah. yeah, we could take like the town hall and build it into a beautiful thing that then, again, it was back to what we talked about at the very beginning. It's building the narrative. So we could help them build right. this narrative and then share it back to the maybe 10,000 people. So what's interesting, lots of things that are interesting about this, about how resilient your practice is to literally change the entire ecosystem that you work in. And also that you created a new medium, right? A film with animation that then was a different deliverable, another asset that then could be used by the client in ways that previously they couldn't, right? They'd had to describe it or or whatever the result was. And we didn't realize that, James. We didn't realize we would be teaching executives about... (laughs) The structure of story. Right. Yeah. Taking their town hall and going, nah, (laughs) let's do it like this. And then they got the feedback. People loved it. And they said, oh, we've been thinking about this the wrong way. And we said, yeah, imagine you're making compelling films, movies. That's what you're doing. You're telling a story or telling stories that engage people and help them understand what you're doing with this company in a time of crisis, of of threat. And you need to double down on that, do even more of it. Well, I want to highlight this visual framework a little bit more because I think it's so critical here. It keeps the participants grounded. Adrian, you use this phrase, time travel, right, is part of the work that you ultimately do. And the danger is that when someone's in a session like this, they're distracted. They're thinking about the work they've got to do in the future. They're thinking about what happened in the morning. And the visual piece that you've done, you've tapped into something so fundamental here. It's our collective fascination about watching something be created in front of you. And you can't help but pay attention to whatever that is, right? So Sarah, you're when you're doing this work, you're at the center of their attention, even though they're having this discussion. Am I framing that the right way? Correct. Yeah. Everybody's watching Sarah's back and she's making something appear. And you're right about time travel. It's a dirty secret. There's two dirty secrets we know. One is no team really has a good shared vision till they've built one. And they just pretend they do. The other is people spend most of their time in meetings, time traveling in the wrong way. So they should be in the present here and now, fully attentive. They're thinking about the future, catastrophizing, worrying about what might happen, or they're back in the past thinking, well, we tried it. It didn't work before. So we are ruthless about telling people, here's your history. Let's reflect on what was good, what was tough. Here's the current reality. Tell us everything that we need to address right now. And now let's time travel 10 years from now and say, what will the world want from us? What's our vision? And by being very direct about time and time traveling and telling them we're time traveling, we're controlling it, you're right, you get the maximum participation and they're fully present as Sarah's capturing what they say and building the framework live with them. And there's an intensity, there's a force, there's a flow that they all acknowledge. And they talk about it afterwards. They say, wow, exhausted, because they've been 100% engaged in each of the activities and in control of their attention. Yeah, it makes so much sense. We should talk a little bit about these roles that are so critical to your facilitating this session. 
the designer, the facilitator, and a producer. Can you walk us through those three roles? Sure. So the designer is the role that I play, and it is it's partially you know, having an artistic ability or sensibility, although we've had people join us and trained people that weren't like trained at all in art, but had a sense that, oh, I can write pretty well and I could draw a little bit. Again, it's back to being able to sort of see things at a meta level, not being afraid of the size and the scale of things. That ability to, I think one thing that is hugely helpful is for me is that sense of scale, even within a conversation as I'm capturing, I'm thinking, okay, I think I've got about eight feet here, you know, and that seems like a huge amount of room, but I might sort of start to feel a little squished. So how can I, you know, what can I do about that? And that's all happening real time as I'm capturing. So the designer role is sort of a catch-all for all things artistic, design, color, color theory. We get into that, that we love that, and produce the product afterwards. And, you know, also I'm like turning around sometimes and taking, trying to take like some nice candid shots of people in the group so that afterwards they'll have that contextual memories of, oh yeah, we remember we were here and we were there and see themselves in that space again. I see this as almost a singer-songwriter approach Mm -hmm. because you're playing the instrument and you're singing, which are two distinct things. Mm -hmm. You're doing this visually, right? You're creating the element, but you're also participating and listening into the dialogue that's happened, which then informs what it is that you ultimately create. That's right. It's a massive amount of synthesis going on trying to follow the conversation. And the other thing I would say is, you know, with your back to the participants 95% of the time, you get really good at hearing, oh, that's James talking, you know, because I know your voice, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. So you get really good at listening and hearing. And and also you start to kind of develop a little bit of a sixth sense about body language. Are they into this? Are we having a conversation that is getting people you know, oftentimes we'll get people standing up in the room and you could just feel the energy coming right at you. And I think the key skill that you develop is to add emphasis. You put visual metaphors, you embellish, you augment words with visual symbols, drawings that lock important conversations down. And people look at that and they go, that's when we talked about whatever it is. And don't underestimate the power of that. These are not just words. These are pictures and representations of key decisions, key moments that people carry with them. In fact, sometimes people want to take a bit of the scrap that you've done and take it with them because it means so much to them. Right. And they don't have to be drawn well, James. So I recall at one point, I remember exactly where I was in the world and where I was on the wall but somebody said a herd of wild wildebeest. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh. my gosh, <laughs> how in the heck am I going to draw that? I, okay, I think they look like cows kind of or something. But And I just quickly, you know, drew like this herd and made it look <laughs> like they were going really fast. And, you know, that's the thing that people landed on. Yeah, It was their pain. They were describing their pain. And in the moment that they were describing and being vulnerable about that, I put it on the wall. Also, I think there comes, and this is for all, really all three roles. I can speak from the designer point of view, but it really is a pretty drastic amount of empathy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes there are just times when I will actually put my pen down mm. and not capture something. Yeah. Because it it's just because that's too raw. You don't need it on the board because everybody already feels it probably in that room. Yeah, that's right. I love loved your singer-songwriter analogy there because Sarah is the star of the show in yeah. the sense that the whole meeting, the whole event evolves around what she's building. I think of you as weaving a tapestry, you know. Mm. It gets richer and richer and everybody's focused on you. So it's a very front and center visible role. Whereas yeah. the facilitator is really only doing one thing, they're helping the group do the task. 
It's the Sherpa. But, and it's so many things. I mean, I, it's the therapy side of it too. Agreed. Agreed. And and it's who is the parent in the room? Who is the adult in the room? And so I think of Adrian, I think of you as sort of Sherpa-ing the team. And especially once you've built that rapport and, and I think it helps when you have a good sense of humor. So there is always, you know, so much laughter going on in, in our sessions. And I, I always think, okay, that's a really good sign when they're now they're people are aligning, they're listening, they're laughing. These are all good there signs. There is a lot a lot of laughter. There's sometimes a lot of pain as well. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a lot of disclosure and addressing, yeah. talking about things that need talking about. You undersell the importance of the facilitator, Adrian. <laughs> Just knowing your own personality here, but we've all been in a room with a poor facilitator and not been happy with the result. So while I agree that the work that Sarah described is the result at the end of the day, and it's certainly immersive when you're in it, without a facilitator drawing out that information that gives her those key indicators of what to do, there is no product at the end of this process. And we are constantly communicating. Yes. I'm paraphrasing, summarizing, mm-hmm. we're checking with each other. Yeah, yeah. right. And my favorite producer, moment, sorry, go I was, was going to say my favorite moments as a participant in these have been when you lean over, I can see your body language do this, right? Your, your weight shifts towards Sarah. You whisper a word that maybe has summed up a little bit of what she's capturing. And then you move on. I always try to note those now that I recognize them because they were something important that the two of you decided had to be on that board. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I've had to go, you know, do capture and things on my own. Yeah. And it's just got to be difficult. And I choose not to do that anymore. (laughs) And and equally, I facilitated and captured and it's not advised. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so tell us about the producer role. This is an important role too. It's huge. Mm -hmm. If you think about films, the producer makes the film happen. And that's what it is for us. You need someone who makes the session work and They're making the trains run on time. They're looking after all the logistics. They're doing a huge amount of planning, scheduling, wrangling, fixing problems. And they're in the live in the room. There are safety net. They're going to catch stuff that we don't get. They're going to keep track of time and warn if it's getting bad. And you can work without one. We do that occasionally. But it is far, far better to see it as a three-person mm-hmm. unit mm-hmm. with the producer producing the event. Right. I always sort of think of them as the safety net, the de-risker, you know. And they're yeah. oftentimes, you know, a person that might have the nature of being a little bit more analytical and will sometimes, you know, say the harder things to right. us. And full disclosure, James, <laughs> we both err on the creative side. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So when we had yeah. finished in COVID, reflecting, writing up the new way of working, and we'd figured out, oh, we should write the old way of working, start to build that. Maybe we could share that. The first thing we did was persuade one of our best producers, Merrily, Merrily, to come out of retirement and come and be our COO, she's be just the a, ongoing producer. Yeah, she's just yeah. a nuclear engineer, you know. <laughs> just, yeah. Who, who happens to be the world's, oh, one of the right. world's best producers. And we need that because otherwise yeah. the trains wouldn't run on time. No, but it's such an important role, James. I'm so glad that you are having us sort of talk about this a little bit. And in the practice, in the envision practice as well, it was, you know, everywhere we went, it was the three-man, three-person team and the analyst, you know, the producer, analyst, person role was just so, you know, incredibly integral to the workings and the runnings of our sessions. They would do things like find us really suitable rooms. And as we've talked about the environment, it's critical that that we have those nice places. We've been in some pretty hard to build places by accident or whatever along the way. So in the practice, we had, you know, those three roles and they had their own community. 
they were sort of the ones that were always writing everything down and building and archiving, cataloging, and, you know, that kind of stuff I'm not so good at. So, Plus, in terms of each session, you need three people. You need somebody looking at it from a creative point of view, designing a framework, populating it. Somebody thinking about the group dynamics, the relationships. Will this conversation happen? And what's the task? And then somebody else who's able to step back, look at the whole thing, do that wider analytical thing, and work out, is this the session we should be having? Is this the thing I'm producing? Is this a good thing? And if not, challenge the others and say, come back. Right. And then oftentimes producing a written document on the backside. The three of us would always, you know, we're always working lockstep all along the way. It is a three-person thing. But within each of our roles, we are sort of a little bit dividing and conquering, but always coming back together along every point along the journey. This was part one of our two-part conversation with Sarah Greer and Adrian Purrier about the visual framework and approach to strategic planning. We learned about the four critical elements to Sarah and Adrian's practice, the focus question, interviews with attendees, making time for research, and the key role that the environment plays. And we talked about the importance of the role of the designer, the facilitator, and the producer. There were a few things that really stuck with me from this conversation. The first is about establishing the foundation of strategic planning, which Sarah calls the armature, the crucial foundation to set the stage for the follow-up conversations. Next was what they learned from the impact of COVID on their practice. No longer being able to be physically together, they relied on video in creative ways, as so many of us did. The learning here is about the importance of teaching executives about the key elements of storytelling and how they now produced a new element, a video summary that could be easily shared as part of that storytelling. And third is the designer's active drawing on the wall in real time keeps people grounded in the present and enriches the conversations. This acts as an antidote to the ever-present pressure and demands that force executives to mentally time travel. In our next episode, we will conclude our conversation with Sarah and Adrian by learning details about three conversations focused on outcomes, values, and capabilities. We'll also learn about the language they use during the session, talk about the technical balance sheet, and why they are now pivoting to teach others how to run these types of sessions. Thanks for listening.